0: hello and welcome back to the new books in indian religions podcast a podcast channel here on the new books network i'm your host dr raj Balkar, and more importantly i have the pleasure and indeed honor today of inviting to the podcast dr Asko parpola who's professor emeritus of indology and south asian studies at the university of helsinki Asko, welcome to the podcast thank you now uh for those of us who are in south asian studies or, or indology uh he'll be a name um known to us because he's been producing scholarship in the area for some time. Uh, Before we talk uh, about the particular contributions, Oscar, would you tell us a bit about the genesis, the backstory? How did you get involved in this field? Tell us.
1: Well, uh, I came to the university to study classics. That means Latin and ancient Greek. I had long Latin in school, so... But at that time, for master's degree, one was required to have three subjects. So I just looked at the university catalogue, what else is there offered? (laughs) And then I discovered that there's a subject called Sanskrit and comparative linguistics. Well... I, I joined the introductory course in Sanskrit and almost immediately found that this is my field.
0: You fell in love. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. And um, uh, well, when I got to the PhD phase, my professor gave me a topic um Continuing the work of one of his predecessors, Dr. Reuter, who had started uh, editing Drahyayana Shrauta Sutra, uh, a Samavid, uh, which belongs to the Samaveda. He had published uh, one fifth of this text with. Tanvin's commentary. The rest of the text remained unpublished, but he had completed it. It was accessible to me in the university library. And for my PhD, uh, I translated this published part, that means the first two uh, Chapters of the <clears throat> of the uh, Drajaya, uh, no Latiyaena Srauta Sutra, which is almost identical with Drah-yayana. Uh, <clears throat> uh My intention was to compare these two texts, Drahyayana shrauta Sutra and Latiyaena Srauta Sutra, because. Uh, they throw interesting light in how many Vedic texts have come into being. I mean, they are based on previously existing work. And, uh, well, my my thesis was sort of introduction, comparing these two texts. (laughs) Uh, But uh, in addition, I translated into English. The first chapters dealing with the Agnishtoma, which is the simplest form of Soma sacrifice, giving advice to some Vedic priests what they have to do when they participate in such a ritual. Mm -hmm. Please go on. Yeah. Yeah,
0: um maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you got interested in the uh Indus Valley uh culture and script and maybe contextualize a little bit what the what the issue is with the script.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps we could c- come to this a little bit later because I would sure. like I mean uh, you invited me because of I think the recent Publications which sure, are absolutely. disseminated. So I just wanted to continue that <clears throat> while doing this work on the Latiyayana and Rah-yayana, I discovered that um, these two Samavedic schools, Kautuma and Ranayaniya school, to which these two texts belong, they have most texts. In common, I mean, only only on the Srauta Sutra level and Grihya Sutra level, they are separate texts. But uh, it seemed to me that uh, the text that they had in common actually marked the uh, school attachment through the uh, terms uh, used for chapters and the way they divide the texts. And I wanted to check whether this actually uh, uh, was true of the manuscripts also, Not because we cannot be sure that the editors have not messed with the terms, <laughs> colophones and so on. So I was going through manuscript catalogs, especially such where where uh, which give quotations from the manuscripts, and in the catalog of the Tanjore Maharaja's Serfoji's uh, uh, manuscript library, I discovered. One text which uh, had been uh, uh, said to be Mashakas Kalpa Sutra, a published text of Kautuma Samaveda, But I discovered that it cannot be this text because the quotation gave Jaiminiya uh, uh, names of rituals. In the order in which they are in, in Jaiminiya uh, Brahmana. Jaiminiya is the other main uh, school of Samaveda. We have Kautuma Samaveda with Ranayaniya sub school and Jaiminiya. Now, from Jaiminiya Samaveda, very few texts were known. One was this Jaimini Jaimini Srauta Sutra, but it is a very short text only uh, of the same length as that part which I had translated. So I ordered a microfilm of this manuscript but uh, the library was unable to microfilm manuscripts so I got eventually a Devanagari transcript Uh, I did myself photograph it several times later on but indeed it it was uh, it could be seen that this is a previously unknown Vedic text Uh, and this was in 1966 long time ago And by a coincidence um, a commentary on this text appeared in the same year but without the actual sutra. (laughs) The commentator only uh, quoted the first two and two last syllables of the sutras that he was commenting. This was published by Prem Nidhi Shastri in Delhi with the title Jaimini shrauta Sutra Vrtti Now the first part was really Jaiminis Sutra, the published text but the major part of this commentary was a commentary on the text that I had just discovered but that uh, commentary published in delhi was based on one single manuscript and uh, the text was not correct so almost almost on every line <laughs> you had mistakes and it was difficult to understand without the basic text so i decided that more manuscripts are needed of both the text and commentary, and this was my task, to find them in India.
0: Not an easy task.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, no, actually, but uh, on my very first trip to to India, yes, Pakistan and India in 1971, I started this um, Mm -hmm. search for manuscripts, and it has been continued ever since. Every now and then, together with my former student, Professor Masato Fuji, from Kyoto, uh, we have made regular expeditions and and really combed uh, South India, especially Kerala and Tamil Nadu private scholars, private Jaimini scholars uh, asking for their relatives, I mean, addresses of their relatives, and also all the manuscript libraries over there, and also in North India and elsewhere. So uh, to come to the result of all this uh, fourteen manuscripts of the commentary were traced. actually they they could be reduced by uh, to to four originals because the rest are copies from these copies or copies copies. and of the basic texts, no new manuscripts so those that i had discovered were quite unique fascinating mm. but uh, <clears throat> getting new manuscripts was not the only hurdle in publishing these texts because uh, they are dealing with the samans of the jaimini asaraka jaimini school and these have not been published at that. Uh, had not been published at that time. Only afterwards. So uh, uh, we we could know. I mean, I could get even manuscripts of these earlier Samavedic texts, unpublished texts, so that I could start uh, preparing the the commentary. But I'm sorry, the edition of these texts and their commentaries.
0: Fascinating. Now, the listener might be aware from the podcast notes that uh, this extensive work, uh, this work on uh, editions of the uh, the, the, the uh, Jaiminiya Samaveda Sutras are available, they're now available, they've been digitized, and they're available through the links in the podcast notes. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that process? or what, what prompted you to to create this this amazing resource for us?
1: Well, that is a, actually a preliminary edition because uh, I think I have fairly well established the text. I mean, it, it's in in very good Sanskrit, and uh, I could understand uh, <clears throat> the commentary. For almost almost everything. I mean there there are just a few places were left you know uncertain. but I wanted to, you know, publish a preliminary edition because I'm getting old, I'm I'm having a serious uh, illness. so I wanted, at least a preliminary edition be available for scholars. Uh, I want to complete that (coughs) edition later on, because I have also several other projects to complete. Uh, You mentioned the Indus Valley thing. I mean, this was also, this is a long time project. Tell us about it. Well, uh, for my Greek studies at the university, we could (laughs) study some special uh, book, Uh, and I had chosen uh, the decipherment of Linear B. Uh, which was a <clears throat> sensation in the early 1950s, uh, just about 10 years before I started my university studies. And there was a comparable problem in India, the Indus Valley script, which had has not been deciphered. So together with my brother Simo Parpola, who is an astrologist, he was also a student at at that time, uh, we thought that we could, we might be able to do something uh, also by using computers, uh, something that had become available at that time. We also had a a uh, good childhood friend who was working for the IBM and who was willing to do the computer programming for us. So we transcribed the Indus texts into na- numbers and feeding them to the computer, to which then gave us... Um, <clears throat> Lists. I mean, uh, which could be used in analyzing the structure of the inscriptions, and we also uh, contemplated how, uh, by which methods, uh, the uh, this script could be uh, deciphered <clears throat> uh, in nineteen. 19- 69 i got my first job in copenhagen and uh, there besides other other work i uh, published the first uh, preliminary uh, results of our uh, <clears throat> work in the name of the whole team uh, there were some important breakthroughs uh, which I think will hold good but uh, mm-hmm. unfortunately in the enthusiasm I also uh, <clears throat> published some very unripe ideas and with too sure tone <laughs> so <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Those uh, first announcements met very heavy criticism, which was very useful, but uh, not so encouraging. But fortunately, there were also some experts, like John Chadwick, who helped Michael Ventris in the decipherment of Linear B, who were positive. So... I continued this work, I mean getting rid of the defects of the first announcement and going further with the research. And in 1994, I published uh, a book, Deciphering the Indus Script in which I made yeah. proposed uh, readings for about 20 Hindu signs. So not for the entire script, which I think is impossible. At this time, uh, with the materials that are available to us, we must remember that the cuneiform script could be uh, a really deciphered almost entirely by means of dictionaries prepared by the ancients. So <clears throat> we don't have even uh, any sort of translation into into a known language or known script of these Hindu texts. And actually even if such a translation uh, would become available it would only apply to the limited amount of text that would be included in that uh, uh, translation but for any decipherment it is important to get hold of all material, all available material, and in such a good shape as, I mean, in the best possible shape available. So I started also uh, a photographic corpus of Indus seals and inscriptions. Uh, The Congress of Orientalists in 1973 gave its support to this project and uh, I could get some nominal UNESCO funding, just a few thousand dollars, for the project to be completed in collaboration with Pakistan and India. Uh, so far four big volumes have come out and i'm working on the last volume
0: Hmm. exciting well certainly when that volume emerges we'll have to have you back to cover cover it and talk a little bit bit more in depth about the project so uh, you mentioned that um you have a number of projects on the go um certainly you're still looking at the sutras and apparently you're still actively working on the in valley script um, yes. Is there anything? Is there anything else? That's not that this isn't sufficient. This, this would be more than enough for, for for immortals. But is there anything else that you're looking at?
1: Well, I have a third, a third. Uh, I have had a third project, trying to <clears throat> uh, find out uh, the archaeological background of. The Indo Aryans coming to India, coming the coming of the Aryans. Yes, correct. <clears throat> uh, so, I have, I started. Uh, I mean, be, I became interested in archaeology because of the Indus Valley. Naturally, uh, I I have been interested not only in the script but also the context that mean the Indus civilization in general and its background and aftermath in in south asia but there's also the question when and from where the aryans came to india i mean this is a very hot issue of course politically even today but uh, uh, some I may I have been making proposals, you know, from time to time and learning also about the archaeology of the of Central Asia and Russia and uh, Eastern Europe and actually this has been uh, I mean, a topic which has interested also Indo-Europeanists. Jim Mallory wrote a very pioneering book in search of the Indo-Europeans in 1989. At that time, there was a uh, question, was the... uh, Indo-European motherland, in Anatolia, or was it in the East European steppes? Mallory developed a method. Uh, he was taking the each Indo-European language and following it to its roots. I mean, how far can you go back and where does it get you? I mean, which area? And uh, <clears throat> what what archeo- archaeological cultures are involved? And then, could all these uh, midway cultures be derived from a single archaeological culture? So, this book, actually, he's proposals have been proved right by the great uh, uh, great uh, <clears throat> development of uh, genetic research. Uh, about 9- 2015 and onwards, we have publications based on dna taken from ancient bodies where we know the archaeological context and it has been shown that people from the steppes north of the black sea have spread both to uh, asia to Siberia uh, and to Europe from this area, uh, changing the population very drastically, especially in parts of Europe. So the spread of Indo-European from, from the North of Black Sea has become a reality. Now. As regards to the uh, Aryan branch, uh, an important discovery was made in, in uh, southern Siberia, close to the Ural Mountains, in 1970s. So-called Sintashta culture was discovered with horse-drawn chariots buried together with the people. Now we know that uh, the Rigvedic Aryans are referring to horse-drawn chariots all the time. Such uh, chariots are not found in the Hindu civilization not even horse has been found. There are claims of horse horse bones, but these are very probably from uh, the wild asses uh, which are native uh, to the salt ranges of, of Gujarat and and, and and Pakistan. So uh, actually, uh, these these chariots are the are chronologically the first anywhere in the world uh, according to the, our present knowledge, uh, and both the Indo-Aryan and Iranian uh, languages have terms suiting this, so we can reconstruct the terms for chariots for the Proto-Aryan language. So apparently the Sintasta culture is the from where the Indo-Aryans came. Of course not directly, but we can follow in archaeology the progress. They came to South Asia in the around the middle of the second millennium BC. Fascinating.
0: So before we close today, let me just, we'll pan out to a, a broad question. Clearly you have a number of aims, a number of interests, and clearly you've been working um, in Indology for, for some decades. What, um, looking back, what are some of the, what do you notice about the field, about trends in scholarship, or perhaps um, perhaps what is your hope, you know, what can you sort of share from your bird's eye perspective about um, avenues? Perhaps you hope that would be taken up, or perhaps trends you've noticed in Indology over the decades.
1: Well, uh, <clears throat> I mentioned that I discovered two unknown texts, previously unknown texts, in in one library in India. Now it is supposed that uh, there exist some at least some 10 million manuscripts and and uh, it may be possible to make similar discoveries of totally unknown sanskrit texts also texts in other indian languages uh, i'm just reminding that one of the most important Sanskrit texts, I mean, from many angles, is the Artha Shastra of Kautilya, which was unknown before uh, about 1905, when the first manuscript, the only manuscript of this text, became known so there may be may lie still you know similar discoveries in the diamond libraries.
0: diamonds in the rough
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> yes so i i i think going through the manuscripts and it's, uh, i mean many of them are are accessible in well-described manuscripts, but not not all manuscripts have been well described. only maybe only title has been given, and maybe that title is wrong. I mean, it depends on the catalog. So there's a lot of work in that field which may lead to in- interesting discoveries. So this mm-hmm. is one one thing while well, I must say that uh, I enjoyed the best time of my life in Kerala. Uh, not only studying Samaveda with the ancient, uh, with the with the old uh, masters. I mean, the last generation who had had the traditional training. They are now away. Uh, but I also discovered that the Keralan culture is so rich in folklore traditions. I mean, here in the West, we know Katakali, Kuudiatam, but not Mat- and Eiyam. I mean, these are names that Indologists and others know from the Keralan folklore background. Of course, not only folklore, but also, Sanskrit literature and so on, but um, there is a catalogue of Kerala and folklore, and it lists more than a hundred folk arts. Of these, of these, uh, the, what I mentioned are just three. So, it's an exciting field. I, I actually took, uh, <laughs> I, I discovered one. One uh, uh, statue, which uh, had actually been uh, identified as Yama, in the Trichur Museum, but which actually depicted uh, the unknown cult of, uh, a god of of sorcery in Kerala, Kutichaltan. Very little was known about this god in the in the handbooks that I, on iconography or otherwise. So I took one month off and just chased Kutichatan cult for one month very, very intensively. And actually, I have a big book. I had a good photographer with me. And publishing this book is one of the tasks that I still have ahead of me, but I did publish a a, a very condensed summary uh, in nineteen ninety eight. I think uh, it was called. I mean, in a book called "Aryan and Non Aryan" in India. Uh,
0: Fascinating. Well, certainly, whenever you. Uh, publish a book Uh, I know a guy who runs a podcast uh, (laughs) who would happily have you back on to share the fruits of your labor with the broader um, community and interested public Um, it's it's great that you after all these decades you haven't lost your uh, passion passion I think we're we're passionate about these things why else why else would anybody in the right mind study these things (laughs) other than just just sheer interest (laughs) But yes. it's it. But also, it's it's um so refreshing that you haven't lost uh, your sense of discovery and wonder at the mm-hmm. newness of it. You know, not not the passion for the known paths or the or or, or the great amount that we know about and 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 need to. Clarify about ancient in India, but 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 seemingly on the on the cusp of uh, of the unknown, the sort of entrepreneurial consciousness where you know what's what's in these manuscripts. You know how do we better decipher in this valley script if we ever can? You know how you know you seem to have this consciousness of exploration that's very much alive. It's very refreshing. So thank you, thank you, thank you for appearing on the podcast today. For those listening, we have, of course, been speaking with Dr. Asko Parpola, who is Professor Emeritus of, of Indology and South Asian Studies at the University of Helsinki. Um, uh, keep well until next time. Keep reading, keep listening, and keep contemplating what might be out there to discover in a pile of manuscripts or in material culture. Take care.